Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Now, if you recall, the series that uh, outline that we're following through Ephesians is sit, walk, stand. We sit in the spiritual blessings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We walk in them, and we stand in them together as God's people. Stated slightly differently, we have in chapters 1 through 3, our position in Christ, seated in Him at the right hand of the Father. Chapters 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 9, our walk or our conduct on the earth is based in that position in Christ. And then chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, our stand against our enemy, the spiritual enemy of our souls, based, again, in our position in Christ. And then as well, there's a uh, closing benediction. Now, if you're just joining us, we are three weeks in. Well, this is our fourth now. In a moment, we'll launch into chapter 2, which Bradley just read for us. But first, a quick summary of where we've been, uh, because all of the topics of this letter weave together in typical Pauline fashion. They weave together beautifully. So weeks 1 and 2, Dave Dean took us through chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, looking at the triune work of God in salvation from eternity to eternity. The Father's work in salvation is election and predestination, which blesses us with adoption. We are children of God today. The Son's work in salvation is redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins which we have today. The forgiveness of sins we have today. And the Spirit's work in salvation is a guarantee of the completion of these spiritual blessings that we have in our lives. And Dave summarized it really well with this almost poetic, in his poetic way, saying, as the Father opens the door of his household to us in adoption before the foundation of the world, so the Son opens his arms in redemption through his blood on the cross, and the Spirit opens his account in securing our inheritance unto the redemption of the possession to the praise of his triune glory. At every point in salvation, it is the initiative of the triune God. And last week, Dan continued in Paul's first explosive prayer of thanksgiving for the saints, and also how Paul prayed for them, that they would grow to maturity in Christ through knowledge and understanding of what God has accomplished on their behalf in Christ. Through Christ, we are given wisdom and revelation with the result of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Through Christ, we know the hope to which we have been called, the riches of Christ's inheritance in the church, and the greatness of God's power toward those who believe. And in Christ, God has worked the raising of Christ from the dead, seated him at his, that is God's right hand, where Christ rules over all things. All things are under his feet. All of the church is under Christ's headship, authority, leadership, and Christ is all that we need. He is our fullness. Now, if you haven't listened to those, I strongly, strongly encourage you to. I was so, so blessed, and I'm sure that you will be as well. With that, let's pray, and then we will launch into chapter 2 of Ephesians. Father, thank you so much for your love, for knitting us together fearfully and wonderfully in our mother's wombs, just as, as you desired for retaining your word for us, for keeping it faithful so that we can know you, for communicating it in the first place. Lord, as we approach your word, I I just pray that I would, would, for all intents and purposes, disappear and that your word, your truth would be made known and that if, if the study that has happened over the last few weeks can be an encouragement, then I pray that it will be. And I thank you that it is your Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture 
and through the words of each other that can bring encouragement, exhortation, and praise. And I just ask that you be glorified through our time in your word together, that you lead us and guide us so that we walk with you in all things. Amen. Now, Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses anyway, they could actually, it's such a, it's such an incredibly simple message when you just read through it. But the more that you meditate on it, the more complex it seems. It's so simple that the whole flow of this passage could be summarized in six words. You were, but God, in Christ. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So simple. But the more we meditate on it, the more wonderful and the more complex and the more deep and rich we've, we find it to be. Now, Paul's writing style actually breaks these 10 verses up slightly differently than this simple linear progression. He uses repeated phrases to bookend a very brief mention of who we were before Christ, and then proceeds to use a different repeated phrase to remind us of who we are now in Christ in order to encourage us to continue to walk faithfully with Christ. This transitional section of Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is focused on anchoring the Ephesians and also ourselves in their new relationship with God the Father, which gives them a new identity in Christ and provides them with the new life by the Holy Spirit that is to be lived out even here on earth while we wait for the full receipt of our future promises of life eternal, immortal, incorruptible, to the praise of His glorious grace forever and ever. Amen. Seriously, I think we could just close in prayer, but uh, we won't. Let's dive in. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. You were... And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay, so a few quick terms to define here. Dead, in verse 1. The Greek word nekros, it literally means without life or lifeless. Trespass, paraptoma in the Greek, it means a violation. It denotes a general moral failure. Now, this word is used 20 times in the New Testament, three times in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.7, we are told about the redemption we have, that is, the forgiveness of our trespasses, paraptoma. Here in Ephesians 2.1, and then in Ephesians 2, verse 5, which open and close this very brief statement of who we are in the old nature. Another word, sins, hamartia. Sin is an act or a wrongdoing. It's guilt. It's a sinful act, a moral violation, or transgression of a divine command. Or it could be used as a state of guilt that results from sin or wrongdoing. Now, this is the most common word that's used for sin in the New Testament. It's used 172 times. Paul uses it 48 times in Romans alone. But curiously, hamartia in Ephesians, it's only used once. Verse 2 says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, this phrase, I'll point out two things. For one, just note here, you formerly walked. And think back to verse 1. You were dead. A lot of past tense happening here. Now, this phrase, the prince of the power of the air, is a clear reference to the enemy of our souls, the devil, Satan, which emphasizes his authority over the other evil spirits that are also fallen 
and also his domain in, as Arnold Fruchtenbaum refers to it, the atmospheric heavens. Now, this is not the celestial heavens or the throne room of God where Satan abides or finds his domain. We know he can, he can cross into, so to speak. He can approach the throne of God for a time. And we know that he can come to earth. He can interfere in the physical realm. But it is not where he primarily abides. Paul, another aspect of this is that Paul doesn't use Satan directly. And why is this? My personal conviction is one of the reasons, anyway, is that he's writing to primarily Gentile believers that would have come from a number of different pagan backgrounds. So he is quite intentionally using more general spiritual terms so that no matter what background they are coming from, when they read The Prince of the Power of the Air, they know that whatever demonic forces or spiritual forces that are not of Yahweh are all found in subjection under the feet of Christ. So rather than giving a specific name, he uses a general title or descriptor. Let's move on to verse 3. Among them we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, this, the Greek word for wrath, orge, it does mean anger or wrath, but it's not, it's not merely an emotion or a rage or just, just something that can't be satiated. In biblical usage, the proper, it's the proper payment of sin. Think of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the payment or the wages, the thing earned because of sin. That's what is bound up in the meaning of, of this word wrath. We could call it ultimately our sin penalty. Now, since the fall, every human has been and will be by their own human nature justly deserving the wages of sin, which is death. And in this context, it's the eternal separation from the source of life, the Lord. Does God desire this separation? Absolutely not. In 2 Peter 3.9, we learn that God desires that none should perish and be solidified in their state of separation due to sin for eternity. In Ezekiel 18.23, he states that he does not delight even in the death of the wicked. So, if you, as I once was in my earlier life, are under the impression that God delights in punishing you, he's just waiting for you to stuff up so that he can chuck a lightning bolt at you and pour out his wrath, that belief is simply not biblical. It aligns with paganism, that fear of lightning bolts from above, but it does not align with Yahweh's self-revelation in the scriptures, as we will see in the very next verse when Paul expresses God's rich mercy and the great love with which he loves us. Now, note there's a shift in, in verses 1 and 2. Paul talks about how you were dead in your trespasses. You formerly walked in such and such a way. And then in verse 3, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Paul, at that point, is including Jews into the category of children of wrath because salvation from the sin penalty was never a national or a familial inheritance. Salvation from our sin penalty has always been and will always be received by faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Then Abram believed in the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. This entire section is in the past tense. You were dead. You formerly walked. We formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We all were, by nature, children of wrath. 
and that's it. It's amazing in the whole context of Ephesians how little time Paul gives to recognizing the identity of believers before, before Christ. Essentially, you've got Ephesians 1.7, he uses the word paraptoma, but the context is being redeemed by the forgiveness of our trespasses. Then here in verses 1 through 3, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In 2 verse 5, while we were dead in our trespasses and transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And then there are some other, other verses about who we were before being in Christ. Those, those verses that I just mentioned specifically have to do with the, the words for sin or transgression. There are others that discuss the relationship that we had before being in Christ so in Ephesians 2, 11, 2, 12, and 2, 13, he refers to Gentiles in the flesh being separated from Christ or excluded from Israel and the knowledge of God's covenantal promises, being formerly far off, but now have been brought near. Sorry, Grant, I've kind of gone into your uh, passage for that a little bit. And then in chapter 4, verse 22, we are reminded to lay aside the old self in order to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created in righteousness, holiness, and truth like God is. And then in 5.9, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. That's it. Three verses put the emphasis on who we were in our sin. The other two that use paraptoma mention our sin in the context of being redeemed from it or God making us alive with Christ. And the remaining five references to the former self are all in the context of being far off but now brought near. So let's behave like it. Apparently, God through Paul does not give much mind to who we were, but he cares a great deal about who we are now in Christ and who we will be in the future. So let's carry on to our second point of the outline, starting in verse, verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what was our relationship to God before Christ? In 2.1, we were lifeless in our transgressions and sins. In 2.3, by nature we were children of wrath, deserving the penalty for our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, and listen to Dave Dean's first sermon for this one, as far as the richness of God's mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Now, the word for love here, agape, is one of four Greek words that's used in the New Testament to express a variety of loves and give us a whole context of how that is used. This is the most commonly used for the love of God, agape, and it can also denote the ideas of benevolence or goodwill. Thomas Aquinas defined it as willing the good of another. And in that same mind, I would describe biblical agape love as active affection, desiring the flourishing of another. God being rich in mercy because of his active affection, which desired our flourishing, with which he actively desired our flourishing, even when we were lifeless in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This whole section is immense. We could spend weeks here, but I'll just note a couple of things. First, similarly to how Paul couches the first mention of our transgressions in the context of redemption that we have in Christ through the forgiveness of those transgressions in 1.7, Paul closes the book on this short description of our old lifeless selves in the context of God's rich mercy his lavish desiring of our flourishing by 
making us alive together with Christ. Again, Paul doesn't want us to be caught up in who we were. He wants us to marvel at who God is and overflow with gratitude for who we are now. And secondly, this phrase, he has made us alive together with Christ. This is a not so subtle hint that Jews and Gentiles are being united together in one people in Christ. And we'll reach into that more later on in Ephesians. The focus of these two verses, and there's certainly more to come, is the change of relationship between God and us. We are no longer children of wrath. Being made alive, we are adopted into his family. To use another illustration, we are also referred to as the bride of Christ. And for this change in relationship, it actually fits really beautifully in this passage. At a certain point in time, Esther and I signed a covenant and became husband and wife. In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, to the exclusion of all others, till death do us part. My relationship at that point changed, as did hers to me. It opened the door to a complete relational intimacy on every single level. So too, when we were made alive together with Christ, our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit completely changed forevermore. Now, Esther took on my name. She's no longer a Mosby. She's a co. So too, we bear the name of Christ. Now, all of us, all mankind was created in the image of God, according to Genesis uh, 1:26 and 27. But he has put his name on us as Christians. We bear his name. And also in a similar way that I inherited Esther's family and she inherited mine, our new relationship with God unites us together with every believer as we are all children of the Most High God in Christ. Brother or sister in Christ, you are alive. You have a new relationship with God. So let me ask all of us this question. How am I practically remaining lifeless where God in Christ has made me alive? How is my thought life dead to him? Am I arrogant, prideful, even feel entitled or deserving of his grace? On the other hand, am I full of a false humility, self-abasing, declaring myself worthless when he in the riches of his mercy, because of his great active affection desiring my flourishing, has stepped in and by his own initiative considered me precious enough to redeem? So that, and this is, verse, this is uh, verse 7, so that in future generations, others would praise and glorify him. How in my thought life am I dead to him? Which of my attitudes are dead to him? Which of my behaviors are attempting to raise or raise the old dead lifeless purpose or live in that old dead way? God wants us to be free of those. He has raised us to something new, something true, something fulfilling himself. So we are together made alive with Christ. What does that look like? Paul opens another section here by using this, the repetition of this phrase, by grace you have been saved. And this is what it looks like. Continuing in verse 5, God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's just go back to Ephesians 1.19 briefly and review the hope of his calling the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the saints, that's you and I. 
in 120, when he raised, he, God raised him, Christ from the dead, and seated Christ at his, God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. Paul loves to link these things back and forth and remind us of what God has done on our behalf and link us in with that. What does it look like to be made alive together with Christ? It's a new identity in which we rest, and that is our as our series title indicates, in which we sit. It's our position before God being in Christ. Philippians 3 verse 20 states, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our new identity is no longer citizens of the earth or any earthly country. It is we are citizens of heaven, being in Christ. Now, how did we gain this citizenship? Do we pay for it as one might pay for one's Australian citizenship? No. We receive this by birth, by our new birth, having been reborn of the Spirit into the family of God in Christ. We could go back to Ephesians 1 and that whole discussion on what it means to have been adopted into God's family and taking on the inheritance of an heir. So we have a new relationship with the triune God being made alive together with Christ. And we have a new identity in Christ. We are raised with him, seated in him in the heavenly places next to the Father. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he, that is God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, within Judaism, time is generally divided into two ages. The current one, when God's rule is not fully manifest, and the coming one, when God will reveal his sovereign rule as a king. Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation enable believers to live under God's rule, even in this age. Empowered by his Holy Spirit, empowered by his life. Now, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. So we'll define a few words here and then um, come up with a bit of a summary. Grace. Charis, goodwill, or favor. This word conveys a sense of a gift, a kindness, a favor that's given to a person or persons. The noun charis is related to the verb charisomai, which conveys a general concept of giving generously or forgiving a debt, forgiving a wrong. In the classical Greek, grace usually refers to a subjective disposition goodwill, or good grace, benevolence that finds, its, finds expression in generosity, love that commands action, which is absolutely free. In some ways, grace could actually be considered along the lines of a parent taking absolute delight in spoiling their children, perhaps with the exact gift that they wanted. Um, I recall when I was when I was younger and I played trumpet in a, in a jazz band growing up and all my friends had these beautiful silver trumpets, Bach Silver Stradivarius Model 37s, if you're curious. And I really, really wanted one of these trumpets. And um, my parents made it abundantly clear that that was not going to happen. So for one Christmas, and I'd kind of been badgering on, on and on about this, I thought, well, if I can't have a silver strat, then maybe I can find a cheaper alternative. And so I remember going through all these different gift magazines and everything, because if they used to do that, I'm old. Um, now you just look it up on Instagram or whatever. 
Um, I found this $250 silver coated trumpet. And I thought maybe, you know, this, it's coated in silver. It looks like a Strat, so clearly I'll play better. Maybe this is what my parents would be willing to get me. So my mom comes in one day and says, what would you like for Christmas? And I point out this $250 probably piece of rubbish trumpet that was worse than my Yamaha brass one that I was playing. And my mom says, oh, you know, that's a little bit more than we would generally spend for a Christmas gift. So you don't want to get your hopes up. I'll talk to your dad about it, but probably find an alternative. And I was gutted. $250, that's all it was, right? I didn't want anything else, and I made that abundantly clear. And my mom's just like, just, we'll just find out, you know, just find some other gifts. So Christmas Day rolls around, all the gifts are opened, and I don't have my trumpet. I got a bunch of other cool things. I'm sure I can't remember what they were. All the gifts had been opened by my, my siblings and everything, and, and then my dad says, hey, why don't we, why don't we play a board game? Jonathan, can you go to the, the board game closet and, and choose a, a game? And so, of course, I was going to get the game Sorry because, you know, it's a little game that you can move pieces and bash people's pieces across the room because I was slightly frustrated. And I opened the game's cabinet and there's a wrapped gift, roughly the size of a trumpet case. So, um, surely this is for me, right? Maybe? I don't know. I pull it out. It's got my name on it. And I put it in the middle of the room and my dad says, I think that's yours, son, and I just don't even want to open it. I'm thinking, maybe it's this $250 trumpet. I open it up and the case says Bach. And it was a silver Stradivarius model number seven, 37. Significantly more than the uh, $250 gift that I wanted. I couldn't believe it. And I don't know who is more overjoyed me receiving this gift that I never in a, in a hundred years would have thought that I, I would have gotten, or my parents seeing the joy of me opening it. And then every single concert that they came to, seeing me play this gift of grace that they had given me. Um, and the joy that they felt, well, that, I mean, that must have been something because they had to put up with me practicing, you know, down the hall. So it's... It's a really, really silly, small illustration. But think back in your own life. Maybe as a child receiving a gift that you desperately wanted, or as a parent. Think about a gift that you've given one of your children, knowing that it would require sacrifice in order to make it happen. But you did it anyway. Why? Because of the great love that you had for your child. Now, this absolutely pales in comparison to the gift of salvation that we have. But this is the heart of God when we read, by grace, God's lavish gift for the undeserving, you have been saved. And this comes to our next word, saved, sozo, used 104 times in the New Testament. In Ephesians, it is only used twice. Both of them are in this section, chapter five, uh, sorry, verse 5 and verse 8. The Lexham Theological Wordbook defines sozo as to save or deliver someone from harm or illness. And it notes how common this word is used for the act of healing or cleansing from demonic possession. Now, often we think of salvation as being saved from something. And this is true, but it's only the first part of the picture when we think about it in the context of Scripture. For example, if I see a one of my children walking toward the street and I see a vehicle coming down the road and I snatch them back from the, from the street before they collide with that vehicle, I have temporarily saved them from peril, but they will still eventually die. In contrast to this, there's a beautiful story that I recently heard of. On September 11th, 1966, an Aussie fisherman called Peter Warner was out on his boat near a small island of Atta, where he saw burnt-out patches in the green landscape, and it prompted him to draw closer. So soon after, six boys dove into the water and swam to his boat. 
They claimed that they'd been marooned on Atta for over a year after a fishing boat that they borrowed to get out of school was caught in a storm, and they eventually ended up marooned on this island. But now they had found salvation. So Peter, to confirm this, radioed into the island of Tonga to verify their story. And he could hardly believe it when 20 minutes later, it was confirmed. Their families had even held funerals for the boys. But now here they were, found alive. So usually, this is where a story of salvation stops, right? The six are saved from the immediate peril. They're no longer marooned on this island. Of course, it's all going to be a happy ending. Well, they returned to Tonga and were promptly arrested because the owner of the fishing vessel was irate. And they had borrowed and destroyed his fishing vessel, and he wanted justice. So he pressed charges. A rather long story made far too short. Peter paid their debt to release them from prison, and then he ended up giving them a job on his own boat. They were not only saved from the peril of the island and redeemed from prison of their, for their transgressions, they were saved to a new life, full of wonder, exploration, and adventure all the things that they sought over a year earlier when they decided to borrow someone else's fishing boat. This, it's an incredible modern story that points to the story of our salvation throughout Scripture. See, biblical salvation is not merely God saving us from the penalty of our sin. It is also God saving us to newness of life, eternal, immortal, and everlasting. When reflecting on the biblical concept of salvation and also this story, Dr. Nijay Gupta states, salvation is committing oneself to the flourishing of another. For those of us who are in Christ, God has brought about this plan of salvation because he has committed himself to our flourishing. Because of the great love which, with, with which he loves us, God does not merely pay our sin debt and then say, carry on walking as you were, lifeless in your sin. For believers, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ. He has given us a new relationship. He's given us a new identity, and now he has given us new life, full of more than wonder, exploration, and adventure. It is full of holiness, righteousness, and blessing aimed at working through us to bring flourishing to the communities in which we live. And how is this new life, this salvation by grace received? Through faith. A faith, the Greek word pistis, is used nearly 250 times in the New Testament. According to the theological lexicon of the New Testament, faith is confidence, fidelity, a guarantee, or loyalty. It states, no secular text can offer a parallel to the New Testament or Old Testament faith, but pistis, which derives from pethomai, to be persuaded, to have confidence, or to obey. It connotates or it connotes persuasion, conviction, and commitment, and always implies confidence, which is expressed in human relationship as fidelity, trust, and assurance, an oath, proof, or a guarantee. Only this richness of meaning can account for the faith that inspired the conduct of the great Israelite ancestors in Hebrews 11 what we call the whole of faith passage. Our belief, faith, determines our behavior. Now, Jesus often urged his listeners with the words, he who has ears, let him hear. Having ears does not automatically mean that we will grasp the beauty of an orchestra, the song of the kookaburra. Nor does it mean that we will discern the impending arrival of a large vehicle as we cross the street, or the difference of the scream of a child in tantrum or in genuine trouble. 
we may hear these things without knowing what the sounds actually mean. And so too, when we approach Scripture, we may hear it without understanding what it means or discerning how its, how its truth and its principles apply to our lives thousands of years after it was written. To discern the meaning of Scripture and the sense of the Holy Spirit's leading in our own lives, we need to tune in and actively listen to hear. In the Hebrew mindset, truly hearing led to a response. Hear, O Israel. Adonai is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. I think in the uh, complete Jewish Bible, which Dave Durkin read earlier, it's along the lines of, with all of your heart, with all of your being, and with all of your resources. Truly hearing leads to a response. Truly seeing in the, in the Hebrew mindset led to action, and true belief led to behavior. They were proofs. The response proved that one had heard. Much like if my, asks, if, if my wife asks me for a cup of tea and I hear her properly, then I will lovingly bring her one, usually. Truly seeing will lead to action. Truly believing will lead to our, a right behavior. The response proves that one heard, the action proves that one has seen, the behavior proves that one believes. It's not meritorious. It is, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, as Paul says, reasonable and rational. Like Paul says in that passage where he urges us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as our reasonable service. If God has redeemed and purchased us in Christ. It is reasonable that our faith be put into action by being living, as we are made alive in Christ, sacrifices. Dr. Michael Heiser refers to faith, pistis, as believing loyalty. That is, it is an active and also an intellectual word. There is an intellectual conviction that leads to taking action continually. It is believing loyalty. As I've mentioned before, our beliefs determine our behaviors. For it is by grace, God's lavish love and gift to the undeserving, that you have been saved, rescued out of peril and made alive in Christ through faith, believing loyalty, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one can boast. And that not of yourselves, the, the phrases, and that not of yourselves, and so that no one can boast, generally, Orthodox Christianity is in full agreement with this. People do not earn, deserve, or merit the salvation of God by grace through faith in any way. We don't. It couldn't be more clear from this passage. But what about the phrase, the gift of God? What does that refer back to? Some believe that this phrase, the gift of God, refers back to salvation. Some believe that this refers back to faith. Salvation is the gift or faith is the gift. Now, to be honest, there's good, to, good debate to be had over the grammatical genders of the word gift in relation to salvation as opposed to faith. But I wouldn't say that these are defeater arguments. Some would say because the genders of gift and salvation are the same, that grammatically it links back to, uh, back to that. So it must be that God's gift is his salvation. Others say that gift refers back to faith, as in God gives us the faith so that we can be saved. But I think Ben Witherington's commentary sums this up really nicely, for lack of a better word. I think it sums it up really well. The work of salvation 
including the gift of faith, is all the work and the gift of God to the believer. It is not our own doing or striving, though certainly believers must exercise that gift of faith and appropriate or receive its benefit. God will not and does not have or exercise faith for us. So, what's he saying here? God has done everything necessary for us to receive his gracious gift of salvation, including giving us the capacity to believe and enter into a new relationship with him. But he will not force anyone to believe. He graciously gives us the opportunity to say, Father, your will be done. However, if we do not receive the offer of salvation, he says to us, okay, your will be done. And we remain children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2.3. To be honest, the, the whole concept of the balance between God's sovereignty and man's free will, both definitely come into play. How it all works out, I think I'd have to go back to one of the things that Dave Dean said when in the first week of our series, when we are trying to grapple with some of these insanely difficult to understand concepts, we have to remember that God is not of the same stuff as us. He is not limited to our ability and understanding. And there are some things that are certainly far beyond us. He is not bound by time, matter, and space as we are. And so the way that he operates in some, time, in some ways is completely unfathomable. So how can he be sovereign and yet still allow us free will? To be honest, I don't exactly know. And scripture does not exactly make it explicitly clear. There are good arguments for and against. But what is true and what is absolutely un uncontestable is that he is the one who receives all glory, all honor, and all praise for his plan of salvation. We are recipients. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. And so even if and when there is an act of faith, we know that it is enabled by the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2, it talks about that it is God who is at work within us both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And that's, of course, speaking of believers. But even this interaction of walking out in the Christian life, walking in the Spirit, there's an amount of human responsibility that need to hear and act, but it is enabled by his ability through the Holy Spirit. Now, God's original intention for mankind was not merely to be his image bearers, but to be in relationship with him. That is exactly what he offers us in Christ. It is exactly what he desires for all people across all generations to receive by believing loyalty, which is to his glory, a gift from God so that no one can boast. And that brings us to our final verse, Ephesians 2.10. And in the uh, New Living Translation, it says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. What are the good things that he planned for us long ago? We could spend so much time just wondering and marveling at that concept of we are God's masterpiece. and the fact that he's created us anew in Christ. We could, but we certainly don't have time. I'm already, I'm already over. So what are the good things that he planned for us long ago? There are many. We will just read a few verses from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, namely 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we beg on your behalf, be, or we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we look back from uh, back at the triune work of God from eternity to eternity in salvation, saving us from the penalty of our sins to newness of life, immortal and everlasting. It's no wonder that Paul extols us with such extols with such wonderful praise on behalf of the saints, and then seeks to dismiss who we were before Christ, remind us of who we are now in Christ in order to encourage us to continue to walk faithfully with Christ day by day. This transitional section of Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is focused on anchoring the Ephesians and also us in our new relationship with God the Father, being made alive, bearing His name, which gives us a new identity in Christ, being raised with Him, seated in the heavenly places in Him, we are citizens of heaven, and then being given a new life by the Holy Spirit. We are called to be ambassadors of his reconciliation as we live out this new life here on earth while we wait for the full receipt of our future promises. That is life immortal, eternal, and incorruptible to the praise of his glorious grace forever and ever. Amen. Now let's really close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your amazing gift of salvation. Thank you for how sometimes it is so incredibly incomprehensible, but so incredibly simple at the same time. Thank you for communicating with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your glorious riches of grace, for the newness of life, for uniting us together as one body in Christ. Father, it's a, the prayer, the desire of my heart that every single one of us, and myself especially, walks in the newness of life rather than in the old flesh. God, I thank you and I praise you so much for this body. I thank you and I praise you so much for your word. I pray that you draw us near to you day in, day out so that we can walk with you, so that we can be a shining light in this city of Newcastle, and so that through us, you can bring blessing and flourishing that is a renewed relationship and this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you for entrusting us with it. Thank you for empowering us to walk with you in it. Lead us and guide us in all things for your glory, your honour and your praise. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.